The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hello everyone. Tonight's April 4th and uh, I'm beginning a couple talks on metta, which is uh, Loving-kindness is the next chapter in Ajahn Sumedho's book that I've been following. And so let's take tonight and maybe next week and reflect on the um, capacity of our hearts to relate with kindness and what that means and how we often get trapped into uh, creating a set of expectations like if we're going to be kind, then we should act or look a particular way. So, so much of our efforts to be a good person is really an imitation. We have an idea of what a good person would be like, and then we try to make ourselves look that way. And this practice, the practice of loving-kindness, is much more about discovering this possibility. And I think uh, it's surprising. Loving-kindness is a surprising quality to discover. I like how in the Buddhist tradition um, often these concepts are talked about in the negative. And I think that's especially useful for loving kindness, to think of it as non-aversion. You know, we can just reflect on the day we had and uh, think about the different interactions you had today and think about getting yourself from one place to the next and think about all the things you did to take care of your body. You fed it, you pooped, you cleaned it, all the different things we did today. And then just imagine, like, well, what would that look like if any one of those activities was infused with non-aversion? If all qualities, strands of aversion had been teased out of those activities? Because it's so easy, you know, when we're cleaning, it's so easy for that cleaning activity to be tinged by some kind of aversion, some frustration, some impatience, even brushing our teeth or washing our face. There's even, even rushing, even being in a hurry is a form of aversion or violence in a subtle way. Or when we're talking to somebody, and we're kind of in the mode of wanting to get on to the next thing. So just to imagine how that would be, or even here tonight to be at this talk, you know, with non-aversion. Because there's all kinds of things that our tendency is to resist or to tighten up. Maybe it's something as simple as we ate too much or clothes are a little tight. And then there's some tightness, and then we tense up around the tightness. So there's both the fact that the pants are a little tight, and then both mentally but also physically there's a reaction to that unpleasantness where we, we sort of freeze up the mind and tighten up the body, which is just an, you know, a particular form of aversion.
in the Thai horse tradition, there's a real emphasis on understanding loving-kindness and mindfulness as the same thing, not creating like what we do a loving-kindness practice and then we do an awareness practice. You know, and it's, it's easy for us or it's common these days to think of, okay, the loving-kindness practice, of course, is a practice to develop the heart. And awareness or mindfulness is a practice to develop the mind. You know, we kind of, it makes sense because we're so used to talking about it in that way. But when we actually look, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to separate them. So when we do a formal loving-kindness practice, it's just a particular way of working with awareness. And when we do a, an awareness practice or a mindfulness practice, like following the breath or noticing the predominant experience, it's just a particular form of loving-kindness practice. Because to really be intimate with what's happening requires loving-kindness. It's not anything other than loving-kindness. Even if we don't think about using that word, doesn't mean the actual activity of the heart, the, the capacity of being, of connecting and being intimate, that is the experience of loving-kindness. That intimacy or that connecting, really connecting, not maintaining boundaries. So just the uh, ability to be with the breath as a natural happening requires a, a tremendous act of intimacy. It's a real marriage coming together. It's a dropping of boundaries. When we're really with the breathing, when we're really with the sensations in the body, when we're really with sounds or movement, it's an act of love or it's the activity of love. There's a wonderful story that Jack Kornfield tells of um, he spent some time in Thailand as a monk, at first in the Peace Corps and then as a monk, and he heard this story. I think he had visited the refugee camp. You might remember the, all the terrible things that were going on in Cambodia um, in the 60s and 70s related to the war in Vietnam or partly related to the war in Vietnam. And... Uh, when the Khmer Rouge was in power, many people left Thailand, and, I mean, left uh, Cambodia across the river into Thailand to refugee camps. And, um, of course, many, many people were killed. I think several million people were killed um, during that time in Cambodia. And Maha Gosananda, a well-known Cambodian monk, set up... Uh, a place in one of the largest of the refugee camps and uh, chanted this section from the Dhammapada which says something like um, hatred never ceases by hatred through love alone hatred ceases this is the eternal truth so this is from the Dhammapada one of the early first section of the Dhammapada a collection of the Buddha's verses and um, so he kept just chanting it over and over again. And hundreds of people just started to cry because, of course, all of what had happened in Cambodia, a lot of those people were angry. You know, cousins and family members and friends were killed. Houses and businesses were destroyed. And so obviously it's easy to get angry. And just for the 
somebody to be able to speak that truth, that even in this situation, non-aversion is possible. It's appropriate. It actually is what's really healing. Hatred isn't healing. So this can be an ongoing reflection for us. Like, what does that mean to live with non-aversion? So for the next few weeks, we can just use this as a reflection, not as an imitation, because that will be our tendency, is to use this reflection as a way of judging ourselves. So when we are averse, when we are frustrated or irritated, then we just, oh, I'm not supposed to be, so I must be bad, which is just more aversion. Right now, we're averse, and then we get averse because we're averse. And all it does is uh, bound up the heart. So instead, do this practice as a reflection, like we're just reflecting on the presence or absence of aversion throughout the day. And simply noticing when aversion is around, it itself, just the noticing of it, it itself kind of asks the question, well, uh, what is it like to to be not averse? Or is that a possibility to be free of aversion now? What would it be like to drop this aversion? Because when we see the aversion clearly, then we know what needs to be abandoned. So we have to go from the situation right to the aversion. That's actually, that itself is metta, loving kindness. So when we're in a difficult situation and we really don't like it, so in that situation, you know, whatever it might be, traffic or just a lot of yucky memories that are coming up for us or a lot of pain in the body and we don't like it. So the first act of kindness is to know we don't like it. To be deluded, meaning to be acting out our irritation and frustration and aversion, is non is aversion. It's not non-aversion. But to begin to see, oh, this is aversion, that means we're becoming intimate. That means we're connecting and being intimate with the aversion. Well, that connection is love. That is the force of love. To be willing to be close to an irritated mind, irritated heart, frustrated heart, that requires loving kindness, right? Because loving kindness is that force that understands that everything belongs. Everything that is belongs. It's not creating boundaries or dividing things up into good and bad. So in this way, we, it's really easy to see how loving kindness is just another way of talking about wisdom. Because wisdom, especially in the Buddhist tradition, is about non-dualism, not seeing things in terms of this and that, good and bad. But instead, we see things in terms of Dhamma, the way it is. We're not dividing things up. And so just to be aware that there's aversion is a way of not dividing things up. It's really letting things in. Oh, frustration is like this. Irritation is like this. Anger or jealousy or envy is like this. Self-righteousness is like this. It'd be interesting to see how many words we could generate for aversion. I mean, there's so many different flavors of aversion 
including fear and all the different forms of fear. And to just begin the, the process of uh, non-aversion by uh, not being critical of being averse. Just understanding that in a way, of course, of course we're frustrated, of course we're fearful, of course we're impatient, of course we're jealous, of course this mind wants things to be different than they are. I mean, given how things have been conditioned, of course. I don't know if it's actually in the the word metta, which is the word for loving kindness, but somehow it's said that the, the word is related to the word for gentle rain, or somehow it's associated with gentle rain. And that's really a nice image of metta, this quality it has this, uh, you know how it is when you're outside in the mist? It doesn't seem like it's raining, but if you're outside long enough, you get soaked. And metta has this quality of uh, getting us wet. It's a moisturizing quality for the heart as opposed to a drying quality. It sort of softens things and moistens. Moistens? Moistens? What's the word? Moisturizes. Moisturizes. <laughs> it does something like that. <laughs> Gets things wet. And it's gradual. You know, it's like we're we're just radiating this quality of patience or this capacity, this willingness to let things in, to allow things to be. Or as Ajahn Sumedho says in this chapter, to welcome things. Joko Bak, a well-known Zen teacher, uh, one of the elders in Western Buddhism, American Buddhism. She's got to be in her mid-80s now, and uh, she has a little uh, meditation center in the suburbs of San Diego. And she talks about mushiness and how she uses the simile of an ice cube. You know, normally, we're ice cubes, and then as we begin do, to do this reflection on loving kindness or non-aversion, it's like the more we discover the, the capacity, the possibility of being soft and open and receptive, it's like the ice cube begins to become mushy. And then even if the ice cube turns back into a hard ice cube, it, in a way it never forgets its mushiness, its, its fundamental nature to be mushy or to be water. And that's like it for us too, like we can still get really afraid really tight, really hurt, and then react to that hurt by being hard and judging and cold and, and violent or shut down. But in a way, if we've touched recently and often that mushiness, that softness or receptivity, it's like even when we're really hard, it's like in a sense, and again, this is like wisdom, there's space around that hardness. We know that this isn't the only way. Even though we're caught in this hardness now, this reactivity, we understand that that even the hardness can be accepted. It's like, and it changes it, doesn't it? It's like there's one thing being hard and really identified with the hardness, with the anger, 
And there's another way of being, which is we're really tight, and we know we're tight, and we care about being tight. We're still hurting, we're still angry, but we know we're angry. And it's like there's space or mushiness around the anger. And it, it's a different mind state to know that anger is there. I'll just read a little bit from Ajahn Sumedho's chapter on loving kindness. I think this is chapter four. We begin to realize the mind is like a mirror that reflects everything. Like a mirror, the mind is not damaged by anything it is reflecting. A mirror can reflect the ugliest, nastiest thing in the whole world and still remain untarnished, even though the reflection is terrible. The mind is like that mirror. The mind itself is pure. There's nothing wrong with the mind, but the reflections can be very impure or ugly or vicious or they can be very beautiful. If we try to punish the mirror, if we destroy or crack the mirror, we go crazy. Then we're really stuck. But if we're willing to, we can recognize that the reflection in the mirror simply is as it is. This reflection is a skillful way of dealing with thoughts and feelings that may be very unpleasant for us. It's not difficult for me to feel kindness towards things that I like, like kittens, puppies, cute children and pleasant people who say nice things, sunny weather, etc. I have no problem with these. But what should I do when people and things are nasty and foul? I could dwell on the nastiness. I could think, I can't stand that person. I hate him. Somebody like that shouldn't be allowed to live. I wish they'd go away. I could do that, couldn't I? It would be the easiest thing to do. But dwelling on such feelings of aversion does not encourage peace of mind. And this is what we get, that dwelling in non-aversion is really a way of taking care of ourselves. It's, it's like the most practical thing in the whole world. This is the great, great unpracticed, uh, unpracticed practice that we could all be doing all day long is this reflection on non-aversion, just living our life with non-aversion. The, the big barrier is we think that the world, that aversion is appropriate in the world, that somehow we get something through aversion, like the person deserves our aversion, or the situation deserves our aversion. If I'm not averse, things won't change. You know, And all we have to do is look at that a little bit to see that it's not true. It's not the aversion that makes things change. What makes things change is effective action. And non-aversion is not in the way of effective action. Non-aversion is really about our heart state, our mind state, whether it's tight or whether it's soft and open. We have to appreciate how, how strong this uh, habit of our mind to want to annihilate or get rid of these nasty states, as Ajahn Sumedho says, either internal states or external situations in our lives.
it's just amazing how easy it is to justify killing something, you know, killing a mind state or killing another person, like holding them outside of our heart, somehow believing they don't belong. There's an interesting story. Um, Gurdjieff, a spiritual teacher, a recent teacher, and he had a center somewhere in France, I forget exactly where, maybe even in Paris, and there was evidently, as the story goes, a really difficult person who lived at the center, and people just could not stand this person, and I guess he just had a lot of personality traits that were hard to be around, and uh, eventually they somehow, the, the people, the other people at the center convinced this person to leave, or were so obnoxious or angry that the person left. And Gurdjieff tracked tracked down this person, found him, and offered him money to come back and stay at the center to live there. And, you know, the students couldn't believe it. Like, why would he do it? This person is so obnoxious and so difficult and, you know, not spiritual. And it's uh, because we need these things in our lives to practice non-aversion with. I mean, these are exactly what we need. This is why it's so nice to have a body. Because when we have a body, there's a lot of difficulty that comes with having a body. And it's nice to get involved in projects, you know. We always, you know, feel like we've gotten too deep, taken on too much. But one of the things about getting involved, like getting involved in relationships, as difficult as they are, is that we get to work with a lot of aversion when the person, the situation, the relationship doesn't turn out to be what we thought it should be. Or when, you know, the meditation center doesn't turn out what we wanted it to be, or the on and on like that. Because the question is, do we need a perfect world in order to have a perfect loving heart? You know, what comes first? The perfect world or the pure heart, you know, the heart that's not afflicted with aversion. So if we're waiting for the world to be pure, (laughs) we have a long wait. But we can cultivate, you know, we can use our lives to cultivate something pure. And this is like the, this is really the crux of understanding what the path, spiritual path is and what it isn't. Because there is something that's getting purified in in a spiritual life. And what we, what we would call a worldly existence is we use our life to purify our situation, you know, to create the perfect situation for ourselves. And a spiritual life is we take our fixation off of the world, you know, off of our bank account, off of our body, off of the kind of friends we have, the kind of job we have, and we put our attention on our heart. So what we're purifying is our relationship to all of those things. We're not purifying all of those things. We're not turning the world into the perfect place. We're purifying how we relate to the world. And the image the Buddha used was, you know, either we can cover the world in leather to avoid stepping on sharp things, or we can make a a pair of shoes with a piece of leather. And This is just an example or just a metaphor for where the work really is. It's really about this reflection, this ongoing reflection and non-aversion. 
And another way we can work with that is just notice that tendency to see things in terms of good and bad. Like even now, when you just, if you were just to look around the room, and feel free to do that, you look around the room, and we turn things into good or bad. And now maybe here at Common Ground, when you look around the room, you're seeing mostly good. Like you feel good about the people you see, and it's it's sort of a pleasant room because it's mostly uncluttered and there's not a lot of messes in the room. But even that is a cause for stress, just seeing it is a good place. Because if we see this as a really nice place, that means there are not nice places out there. So we're constantly dividing things into good and bad. It's the play of, you know, attachment and aversion. If there's attachment, if there's good, then there's bad. So the reflection on non-aversion is really dropping this basic habit of turning things into good and bad. So we can just practice now as we take in the experience of the room. We can either see, interpret the experience in terms of good and bad, or we can open to things as Dhamma, the way it is. So it's a purer or more simple way of receiving or seeing or being in here, in this space or this moment, where things aren't good or bad. They're just what they are. Like the particular quality of our mind right now, it might be dull, it might be anxious, but whatever it is, it's just what it is. It's not good or bad. Or we could reflect on the state of the world, the different injustices, the environmental problems, the social, political problems, racial problems. We can reflect on our families and just see them as they are. It's just the nature of how it is now. This is nature. It's just an expression of nature or dharma, dhamma, the way it is. Now, we're not uh, excluding uh, a participation in the world, but it's just that our participation is coming out of that simplicity instead of the complexity of of having to figure out uh, whether things are good or bad you know, having to do this ongoing classification in terms of good or bad. Now, we assume that if we don't turn things into good or bad, we won't know how to participate. So just see if that's true. Practice this non-aversion, not turning things into good or bad, and see if it affects how you participate, whether you become a passive blob, (laughs) letting life walk all over you, or whether you become a very skillful, nimble, a person uh, responding appropriately in the moment to whatever is arising. You can just see. This can be our sort of experiment in truth this week, this practice of non-aversion, not turning things into good and bad. One of the great things about uh, moving beyond seeing the world in terms of good and bad is that we're not afraid or surprised by what happens in the world. And so that's another way to do this reflection, to kind of go through our life, through whatever is going on, some interaction with a person or going to work, with uh, um, with this way of being that 
that nothing could surprise me. So because it, we're not seeing things in terms of good or bad, it's like anything can happen and that would be okay. And we actually have this as a reflection, like I'm having dinner with my friend and anything could happen and that would be okay. Or I'm going to work, anything could happen and that would be okay. It could be really good, I get promoted, or the boss could humiliate me, or all my, my computer could fall apart and nothing could be retrieved, and that would be okay. Meaning, that's not our preference, but that it would just be what it would be. And even if the heart got all bound up, then that also could be something to be received instead of turning into bad. Oh, it's bad that I'm angry because my computer died. So nothing, imagine what that would be like, that uh, the world could unfold as it's going to unfold. Nothing would surprise us. Nothing would be either good or bad. It would just be what it is. And now it might scare us to say something like that because we've got this idea that the appropriate tact would be to somehow exert my will so I only get the things unfolding that are good and I avoid the things unfolding that are bad. And so that's mostly the decision we're making is that I'll take that, I'll take that route of approaching my life to get all the good things and avoid all the bad things. But that's, that's a life of attachment and aversion, of a heart being bound up. So we could let go of that and we can, can cultivate another way of being in the world. So this is a life of non-attainment. We hear that a lot, especially in the Zen tradition, they use that phrase, non-attainment. But that's exactly what practice is. When we're, whether we're doing loving-kindness practice or awareness practice, it's really a practice of non-attainment. So when we sit down, you know, we may make some effort, willful effort to calm down, to make the body solid and comfortable and at ease, and to make the mind quiet and at ease. But once we settle in, the real practice, the real spiritual practice is non-attainment. It's being at ease, open, at ease, and free without having to attain anything special. And that's different than a lot of what we might hear in, in various spiritual circles, including some Buddhist circles, where we really get a sense that there is an attainment, like we're after enlightenment, or we're after union with God, or we're after some kind of mystical experience. And in a sense, it's true, we are after a mystical experience. It's just that that mystical experience arises in a very ordinary way when we completely uh, turn toward a way of non-attainment. We don't have the mystical experience by trying to have a mystical experience. The more we want to have an, a mystical, ex mystical experience, the more there's a strong sense of self that wants something. And that is in exactly the opposite direction of what we'd call a, a real mystical experience. A self who wants something is in the opposite direction of an experience of wholeness or emptiness of self. So that's why we call it a practice of non-attainment.
So in the next week or two, as we're reflecting on this chapter of loving kindness, the particular way to do that, I think, um, because it's really Ajahn Sumedho's approach and the Thai forest tradition's approach, is to really see metta, loving kindness, as an expression or just the other side of wisdom. Not to see it as in terms of mind and heart. We have wisdom and we have compassion. But really understand them as one thing. So that our practice, our, our way of being in the world, a skillful way of being in the world, is a way that reveals this inherent love or inherent compassion and inherent wisdom. It's really the same thing that's being revealed. And it's simply a matter of not doing what we are we're doing something and we have to practice not doing that. And what we're doing is we're splitting the world, moment by moment, we're splitting the world into good and bad. Our mind is working over time, perceiving what we perceive, knowing what we know, and then it does an extra thing. It interprets what we're knowing, perceiving, experiencing. It, it, it interprets it, it turns it into something good or bad. And then it reacts to that. See, that's the part we can let go of, but we have to see it. And in seeing it, we see that it's extra, that we don't have to do it. That's why, you know, there's such an emphasis on being close to dukkha, difficulty. But this is such a, this practice of loving kindness is so ordinary, because we can do this all the time. There's this great quote from Mother Teresa where she says, in this life we cannot do great things. We can only do small things with great love. And I really like that because it's like this is this is a big thing we're doing, but it's being done, it can be done in any ordinary moment. Like any moment, like this moment. To be in this moment without aversion. Or without turning this into good and bad. Because I'm sure there were moments in the talk where some of you were really turning the experience of hearing these words into some kind of an attainment like, oh yeah, oh yeah, if I can only. And we create like a fear of being who we think we might be if we don't do this practice and attached to who we might be if we do do this practice. Or maybe there's some other thing going on, which is just a, you know, Oh, Mark, he's so idealistic, or he doesn't know what he's talking about. And just a basic aversion to anybody who's asking us to do anything, you know, who's suggesting that there's actually something to do in the world. Uh, it's already too much to do, there's more to do. So we're just turning it into something, oh, I just, you know, can't be about doing anything. The path has to be about, you know, already being free, because I don't want to do anything. So there is a, a small thing that we can do with great love, with great attention. And it's, a, it's really more than anything, it's about investing or respecting the power of the present moment, like that something actually is available here, like freedom. Freedom is available in this moment. Another time, I, I remember reading somewhere, some book uh, about Mother Teresa or a collection of her writings and speeches and stuff, where uh, 
she was invited to address the United Nations General Assembly at some point. And uh, afterward, some of the delegates were asking her questions. And one of them asked, you know, kind of went on and on about all the problems in the world and then said something like, and what can we do to save this world or to fix this world or something like that? And Mother Teresa just didn't go there at all. She just looked at the guy and said, when you go home tonight, you know, see if you can be kind to your partner. See if you can be kind to your children. Really work at that level. And don't worry so much about these other things. Which is sort of surprising. Because, you know, Mother Teresa definitely cared about the bigger issues in the world. Spent her whole life really addressing, you know, some issues of poverty and neglect. But just again, that... Uh, that emphasis in our spiritual practice of, of really staying, keeping it simple. You know, where, how does love express itself here in this moment? How can I let this moment fully express itself? Not reject, not control, not in any subtle way be violent or aggressive or cold, indifferent in this moment. And you know, we can err on both sides. So not being engaged in this moment is just as much an act of aversion, can be just as much an act of aversion as sort of striking out sort of the, the stereotypic form of aversion where you might want to hit or kill something. But just kind of being a cool peaceful meditator can be just as vicious an act, you know, around our friends in the world as, you know, hating the bad stuff and wanting to get rid of it. So we want to be on the lookout for the different ways we tend to express aversion, whether it's by not getting involved or whether it's by getting involved. And to be really, uh, to let go of ideas and to look directly in the moment and the quality of the heart, because that's where we'll get our that's where we'll get our direction. Know how to practice. Maybe I'll read one more section from Ajahn Sumedho's book and then open it up and see what people have to say. Here he's just talking about it, uh, non-aversion or loving-kindness as a form of patience. The way out of suffering, as the Buddha taught, is cessation. Freedom from suffering comes through allowing, <coughs> allowing that which is, has arisen to cease. It is as simple as that. In order to allow anything to cease, we must not interfere with it or try to get rid of it. We must allow it to go away. This means that we must be patient with it. So metta, loving-kindness, is also a kind of patience, a willingness to exist with unpleasant things without thinking about how awful they are or getting caught in the desire to get rid of them immediately and expediently. When we have metta for ourselves, we start by listening to what we really think of ourselves. Don't be frightened. Be courageous and listen to the unpleasant thoughts or fears that go through your mind. Sometimes a lot of silly 
foolish things come up. Nothing really bad or terribly evil or disgusting, but just foolish, irrational things. Maybe we like to think of ourselves as being very serious and sincere, practical and sensible. But sometimes the thoughts and feelings in our minds are really stupid and useless. We'd like to go out and help the third world, build latrines in Ethiopia, or do something useful. So sitting in meditation with rubbish coming up seems to be a waste of time. But I reckon that the ability to sit with the rubbish is a sign of an advanced student. It takes a long time for people to just let the rubbish come up like that. Normally, you start thinking of all the important things you could be doing. Oh, I shouldn't be just sitting here. There are so many things I, I have to do first, so many important things. But how much of your life is just running about doing terribly important things, trying to keep the world going, putting everything in order, because you just can't face the rubbish that would come up if you weren't running, about, running around? In meditation, you deliberately set up conditions so that there is not much you can do. It's a way of giving yourself the opportunity to watch what happens when you don't have a lot of things to do and a lot of things to occupy your time. There are little things to do, like watching your breath, but you can only keep that going for a while until that drops away. Then you can watch the sensations in your body. Now I'm going to give you another thing to do. Have metta. Metta is being patient, being kind. So you can think of that when you sit down, you know, watching the breath, that basically what we're doing is having metta for the mind-body experience. Now we might have specific techniques like returning to the breath and connecting, sustaining attention with the breath. The basic text of our practice is the experience or is the way of being, which is metta, loving-kindness. We're being loving or patient, or open, or accepting with the mind-body experience. And we practice in this formal way, you know, our formal sitting practice, so that we can practice all day long. That's the real point. So we'll talk, we'll continue this conversation and these talks for at least one more week and maybe two more weeks before we move on to Chapter 5. But we have some time now. If people have some thoughts from your own life, uh, just the ordinary, natural ways where you've seen the quality of metta, non-aversion, arise for you, or places in your life where it's been really difficult to relate, to be in that way. Or any questions you have about the talk tonight? What seems to come to mind? Greg? Yeah, well, I am uh, the kind of person that's generally pretty anxious about what's going on in the world following public current events and stuff like that. And I always consider that sort of my rationale for getting involved in your being active in community or politics or something because I always thought of it as being a better way to be than just simply watching what's going on and getting all worked up about it. So this would suggest that that's not, I mean, it's good to be involved, mm-hmm. you know, but the interesting thing is I'm, I still get worked up and anxious about the world. And so this talks about just being with that suffering as opposed to using that as a motive to get even more involved. Yeah, because what we do is 
I mean, otherwise what we're doing is adding something to the mix, but what we're adding is either attachment and aversion. And generally, the, what we want to fix, what motivates us to get involved, is we see the effects of attachment and aversion in the world, and then we want to do something about it. But if what we're adding to the mix is more attachment and aversion, then we're just sowing the seeds for more of what we're trying to fix. So, I mean, you have two options. I don't think it's just about one thing. I think you have two options. One is to stay involved and in your involvement to, to, to somehow remind yourself, like when you go to your, are you on the school board, right? So when you go to the school board meetings, you know, put in your pocket a little note that says non-aversion, non-attachment. And, you know, every time you put your hand in your pocket, you just remember, like, well, how can I be at this board meeting, the school board meeting, with non-aversion and non-attachment? Can I say what needs to be said with non-aversion and non-attachment? You know, can I be quiet without doing it with aversion or with attachment? So whether you speak or don't speak, it's, it's really like what you can just imagine that what I, my intention is to add wisdom and metta to this, that's the missing ingredient. So whatever I say or don't say, what I really want my participation to do is add this ingredient of wisdom or metta. And that's, and that's a way to sort of understand our activism in the world. It's like what we're bringing is the metta wisdom, not so much the what specifically we say or do, because who knows the effects of what we say or do. I mean, it may look good in the beginning, but what we say or do may be the cause for terrible things to happen, despite our good intentions. So we really have to let go of whether our actions or words are going to have a positive effect. So we can think about it in a deeper way, that at least our intention was really beautiful, wholesome. And that we added to the mix. And people will energetically see that or know that, you know, and it will be trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Tony. Yeah. Yeah, oh, sure. It might, it, 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 it
It must be, do you think it's Pema Chodron? That's her. Yeah, and, and that's actually, you know, sometimes we hear about the bodhicitta or bodhisattva aspiration that we practice for the benefit of all beings. And one of the reasons we want to cultivate that aspiration, like to do our practice, not just to take care of ourselves, but to take care of others, is that sense of responsibility is a, it's a powerful motivation. So if we have a sense that when we're angry, it's not just uh, hurting us, but it's sort of setting something in motion that causes a lot of suffering. It actually helps us a lot uh, make these uh, difficult changes in our lives when we understand the impact. And when we understand the advantage of like going to a school board meeting with a lot of equanimity, like what a beautiful gift that is, that can be a very powerful motivation to try to remember to do the best we can. Thanks, Tony. Barbara? Uh-huh. I just recently came up from England where um, I visited with my sister and uh, two of you I had um two quotes from a years ago when my father died and uh about a photograph, some photographs, all the photographs that my father left my other sister. Um both of my sisters had acted very
beautiful. And then just connecting that to what I said earlier, it's like when you were doing that, you weren't turning the story into good and bad. There were no good and bad. So being intimate there with her, it's like the mind wasn't she was bad or I was good or I was bad, she's good. And that really frees things up when we're not sort of defining the situation. Thanks for sharing that. Other thoughts? We have a couple minutes left. Let's just leave it here then and take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a breath or two together. And then we can reflect on this bodhicitta aspiration, the awakened heart aspiration to practice for the benefit of all beings. So we can take this time and clarify this intention to live and practice in a way that supports the happiness, the peace, and the freedom from suffering for all beings without exception. May all beings be happy. Thanks for coming, everyone. So a couple of announcements. We have our monthly loving-kindness practice group, usually the first Friday of the month. So that means it's this Friday at 7 o'clock. It's a drop-in group, so please join us if you'd like. We just do about 45 minutes of the loving-kindness practice, guided practice, and then we just have a discussion about it. And we always end with tea and treats and informal social time. So that's this Friday. And then a week from Saturday, there's a half-day retreat in the morning. You can sign up in the entrance way if you're interested in that. So that will be 9 until 1. And then that evening, Rita Gross is speaking. She's a well-known scholar and a Buddhist teacher from Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And she's going to be talking about Buddhism and interfaith issues. That's 7 o'clock, Saturday the 14th. That's also a drop-in. That's our monthly evening Dharma program where we invite a guest teacher to speak or a senior community member to speak. And uh, also I want to just do our monthly reminder about Donna or generosity. Um, most of you are old-timers, and you know that the way that the center takes care of itself is by putting a bowl out. And we do it this way as opposed to having suggested donations or fees for programs because it really supports um, the community in a deep way as a reminder to notice how we get taken care of being here at Common Ground and to receive that as a free gift. So the teachings are a gift, the center is a gift, the fact that you know everything is the way that it is here it's a gift. All the people who have offered what they've offered in the past, we get to receive that. And it should be a cause for joy. And so we want to reflect on that. So when you walk in,
to the building, when we walk into our new building or you drive by the new building, it should be a cause for joy, like, wow, this building exists, this center exists, these teachings exist because people are offering them freely, just out of kindness, out of generosity. And we want to feel good about that, feel fed by that goodness. And then the other way we practice, so that's the practice of receiving, is to give all through our life. Of course, giving money to Common Ground or other places in our life that we care about, giving our time, if that makes sense, or volunteering for different things, giving our practice, practicing with sincerity, showing up, uh, modeling, you know, loving kindness, modeling mindfulness as best we can. I mean, there's many ways we give back. And to do that, that should also be a cause for joy. If we get too tight about it, too tight about how much we should give or haven't given enough, it will weigh down, weigh us down. Or if we try to always be the perfect model, that tightness, it won't be a gift. You'll be modeling tightness. So there's a, for both the receiving and the giving, it's a real art of finding a way to give appropriately. So once a month, I just remind us, or other people remind us, to just be, to, to reflect about how to give and support the community and to find just the right way so that it's a, a force of joy in your life, really supports you. Every time you think about how you're helping or supporting, volunteering, that it should be a cause for a real happiness. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks for coming. coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.